Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going good. Mm-hmm. I've done my research for BTK. <laughs> and I bet your brain is <laughs> melted. It's, yeah, mush. And I feel like I've spent way too much time with this man, but good. here we are. <laughs> We're on the home stretch. <laughs> on the home stretch, yeah. Yeah, we just have to get through this episode and, you know, the book club episode after that. But those ones aren't as, as gruesome. No, and we have fun with our book club episodes. I love them. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. I already have some songs in mind for my playlist. I haven't been able to pick out any yet. I really have to sit down with that and, and figure it out. Yeah. Well, I have one that absolutely has to be on the playlist, and you'll understand when I tell you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> But first, we have to talk about the big gross pig again for another hour. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, Did you get any feedback from our our part one of BTK? I did. My aunt made a comment. She listens to us every week and loves us. But she was like, I could only listen to half of that episode tonight because that's a lot of of gross for uh, one evening. (laughs) I was like... Yeah, yeah, it is. We understand. We appreciate you listening to us all the time. That's fantastic. If you need a little break, that's cool too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but she said we killed it, so. Aw, thank you so much. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I got some good feedback too. Everybody was pretty much on board with my, you know, insulting and my opinion on BTK. I was a little worried somebody would be like, you're too harsh. I'd be like, no, mm -mm. I'm not apologizing. No. No, this guy deserves harsh. He sure does. It's quite funny, actually. Um, Before (laughs) recording, I was baking and I was listening to BTK's whole confession. (laughs) And Wiley doesn't listen to any of my true crimes. Oh, I can't even listen to him talk. It's the worst. But I played the whole thing. It's like 45 minutes of him talking straight. And Wiley was like, man, this guy sucks. He's not even good at killing. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, thank you. (laughs) exactly what i said oh my god that just made my night (laughs) he's like just kept like re-strangling again and i'm like yeah i know (laughs) it was again i love it yeah he's the worst (laughs) he's friggin' terrible but i suppose we should carry on so i can tell you more about him yeah so first we have to talk about our fluff and stuff responses because those are fun Yes. Oh my God. We had so many good answers. Yes. And thank you guys. I put you on a time limit. I was like, you have 24 hours to respond. (laughs) I have to post my picture and my living room does not have any lights. So I have to work off of natural light and it's never light in the winter, only on weekends when I'm home. So I was limited to when I could take my picture. So thank you guys. Thanks for all the responses. We got lots of them and they're wonderful. I've been laughing all day yes <laughs> amazing so great um my favorite one was from shannon on instagram she said warning number one i will pet your dog number two once i get going i won't stop talking and number three unexpected hugs should be expected <laughs> just love it shannon i'm like true love it true so much never been spoken it's right on point so thank you shannon for responding Love it. And Garth on Facebook said, verbal outbursts of profanity may happen often. Please earmuff all children. 
Yes. I feel like I can relate to that. Um, yeah, <laughs> clearly same. Uh, <laughs> I'm terrible around children and I sometimes say things that I shouldn't. <laughs> oh, I got called out at the playground, Tara. So yes, by another mom. Yeah, that's, that's pretty <laughs> And good. I was like, oh, I don't even know what I said. Yeah, that's awesome. That's even Whoops. better. <laughs> uh, my mom didn't get on social media, but she was like talking to me on the phone and she's like, oh, my warning label would definitely have to do with me getting hangry. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I feel that one too. Yep. I definitely get <laughs> It's hangry. a problem. Yes. Awesome. Well, I guess we should do the thing. Let's do the thing. Okay, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink, tink. All right. Here we go again. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, part two. Are you ready for it? As ready as I'm ever going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so just a refresher from last week, we talked about his background, his need for bondage and fantasy, the brutal murders of his first seven victims, the Otero family, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vianne, and Nancy Fox. And then we talked a bit about his cat and mouse communications with police. We also touched on his own personal thoughts about why he is the way he is. And today we'll be talking about his final three murders, his downtime after the murders, his capture and conviction. So let's get into it. We left off last episode with him having murdered Nancy Fox in her home. And then he called the police the next day on his lunch break, disguised his voice and told them of the murder, then left the payphone off the hook and went back to work. It was December and his wife was three months pregnant with their second child. At home, Raider was on a break from classes and was doing lots of work at the church, so he was busy and not looking for new victims. But he would write poetry about his victims as one more disgusting trophy from his kills. He wrote one poem called Shirley Locks about Shirley Vianne. He wrote it on a three by five card and mailed it to the Wichita Eagle newspaper and signed it with the BTK symbol he created. The symbol being the B he turned into boobs. The T was on its side with the top of the T against the boobs and the K used the top of the T for its back of the letter and the other lines from the K went through the laying down T. Overall, it's a gross symbol. And if you didn't already know this asshole was a horn dog, then you definitely do now. It's nasty. It looks like such a childish thing to doodle, really. I know. And it bothers me so much. Like So I, much. So like, much. It's random, but I was looking up like serial killer symbols the other day and most of them it's like yeah that's that's cool and creepy and scary but no that one just honestly pisses me off I'm like that's... it just makes me mad it's everything about this guy makes me mad but yep right you know um but when nothing showed up in the eagle about his poem he was annoyed so he wrote a two-page letter to cake tv included in this letter was a poem about nancy fox a drawing of a bound and gagged female the same way he had left Nancy. Annie claimed responsibility for the Otero murders, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox, and another unidentified victim. He wasn't disclosing that he was responsible for Catherine Bright at this time because police hadn't yet linked her murder to him. A receptionist at Cake TV opened the letter on February 10th. The letter is hard to read. He compares himself to H.H. Holmes, Son of Sam, the Boston Strangler, Jack the Ripper, Ted of the West Coast, what he calls him, which would have, is of course Bundy, mm -hmm. 
and other well-known serial killers. He says they are all under the effect of Factor X. This is his reasoning for killing. Factor X and its insatiable need for an orgasm. He goes on to describe things about the murders that only the killer would know, and then goes on to taunt the police about how he will kill again. Wichita police had to acknowledge that there was indeed a serial killer in their midst. They encouraged residents to lock their doors and windows and watch for strangers in their neighborhoods. They warned that he was careful and crafty and would look normal. Meanwhile, Raider was attempting some small projects, and each of his projects had a code name. He attempted to enter a woman's home, but she pushed back and screamed, and he took off. He would watch specific houses, and when he traveled out of town for work, he would troll in other towns. He was also shoplifting books about serial killers or murder, or items for his hit kits, or, you know, stealing money from his church. While his wife was out, he watched his female neighbors and dressed up in previous victims' clothing and performed self-bondage on himself while getting his jollies off, which was all well and good until his wife showed up at home while he was in the middle of this one day. He was in bondage, right? Mm -hmm. He was in bondage and women's clothes with the camera rigged up, jerking it while watching a neighbor. Oh, Oh, it's bad. (laughs) It's so bad. His wife was pissed. Pissed. As you can well imagine, I would not be happy at all. You'd be like, what what the fuck is this? (laughs) Right? She was disgusted and traumatized that her husband had this side to him, and she threatened to leave him as she was worried about their children. But in the end, she sought some professional guidance and decided to stay, but they never spoke of what she had seen. Oh, man, I didn't know about that. I didn't know he was ever caught with that whole self-bondage because, oh, my God, there's a lot of pictures of that out on the Internet. And yeah horrifying it is not good not pretty not pretty it's not okay yeah mm. oh, no that poor no woman. yeah she uh spoiler alert she catches him again oh. but we'll talk about that later right <laughs> on june 13th 1978 dennis and paula became parents again this time to a baby girl carrie lynn raider quote from katherine ramsland's confessions of a serial killer she was a delight to the world and to paula For now, she had a girl, a daughter she could share her life with. I was overjoyed to be a proud dad of a healthy boy and now a healthy girl, end quote. Shortly after Carrie was born, Raider contemplated seeking professional help, but, quote, his interest in bondage was much stronger than his desire to stop, end quote. That's from Catherine Ramsden's book. Even though life was busy with the new baby, he continued to drive around creating and stocking projects. On April 28th, 1979, his daughter was not even a year old. Raider had broken into the home of Anna Williams, who was 63. He had narrowed in on her house while he was trolling and had chosen the date for his next attack. Except, once he broke in, he just waited. He had cut the phone line, he drank his water, he laid his supplies out, but Anna never came home. So eventually, he got mad and left. Luckily for Anna, she had been out at a square dance and then stopped to visit her daughter, and she wound up arriving home much later than was normal. So here is where I remind you why it is so important to change up your routine. Right. It could very well save your life. Yeah, and but it's so hard right now during COVID times because it's not like there's other things for you to do. So I feel like you go through the same motions every day, at least like 
me working every day, I feel like I'm doing the same things. And I think about yeah. this and I'm like, this is bad. <laughs> I Absolutely. Same. <laughs> I mean, I leave my house to take my kids to school. I come home. I leave my house to pick my kids up. I come home. Right. <laughs> and that's about it really. Like, yeah, but yeah, it's terrifying. You have to throw something else in there just to spice things up. <laughs> right. Go for a walk around the block or something. <laughs> Quick trip to Timmy's. I don't know. <laughs> Something. Yeah. Anyways, Anna arrived home around 11 p.m. She discovered someone had been in her home, gone through her personal things, and her phone line was cut. Now, I don't know if she found a payphone or went to a neighbor's, but either way, she got the fuck out of there and called the police. Officers responded, checked her home, and discovered that it had been entered through a basement window. Clothes and a wire were found next to the bed, and some jewelry and money were missing. Life carries on until June 15th, when Anna received a package in the mail addressed to her deceased husband. The package, which was opened by her daughter, contained a photocopied poem titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? Which is disturbing. Nightmare fuel. Like, not okay. Yeah. And he thinks he's all clever and making it all pretty and like a poem. No, it's not no. okay. Uh, it's disgusting. Um, a drawing of a bound, nude, sexually violated woman with her hands and feet tied to a pole, Anna's own scarf that had been taken the night of the break-in, and a piece of her stolen jewelry. An almost identical package was sent to Cake TV the day before at 4 a.m. The postal clerk said that the man who dropped off the package was a white male, around 5 foot 8, and 30 years old. The poem was signed with his gross BTK symbol. I'm surprised that he like went and actually dropped it off. Like that seems I know. crazy. I know. Just and so I'm confident. also surprised that the post office was open at 4 a.m. Oh, yeah. Good point. <laughs> like, it was so weird, but yeah, it's like, I don't know. The 80s. I guess. I guess things were different. I guess so. <laughs> Poor Anna Williams knew for sure that she had been so close to losing her life to the madman who had killed seven other people in Wichita. Detectives still had no leads to who this man was, but they tried to track down the photocopy machine used to make the copies by enlisting the help of the Xerox company, but it wound up being a dead end. And Raider would notoriously make a photocopy on one machine and then he'd go to another machine and make a different photocopy. And so he had multiple copies of these things, so they couldn't be traced. So. Oh, interesting. Between when Raider broke into Anna's house and failed, and when he sent his gross packages out, he graduated from the Wichita University and received his bachelor's in administration of justice, which now meant he had no more cover story to be gone at night. He said it was, quote, easy for him to slip back into the Christian world, end quote. Uh-huh. Right. And his kids were growing and he needed to provide for them. He did have to travel a bit for ADT, installing alarm systems, so when he traveled, he packed up his bondage supplies and held what he called motel parties, which was just him playing with bondage, looking at dirty magazines, drawing on them to make the women appear like they'd been tied up, and getting his jellies off. I say. <laughs> what a lame party. Right? Like, it doesn't sound like a good time, but whatever. <laughs> Ugh. And occasionally he would still do bondage at home. One day while his wife was out, Raider was tied with a rope in a woman's slip in the hallway. And surprise, sweet Paula arrived home again and caught him 
in the act again. This time, she wasn't so silent about it. She threatened him with a divorce if she ever caught him like that again. So he moved his things and never again did it in the house. He, of course, continued. He just didn't do it in the house. Of course. He'd do it in the shed or at his parents' place or when he traveled, you know. Of course. Just casually on the just, side. Just normal. Right. Like, and in her book, Catherine Ramsland talks about how he was confronted by his wife. He was told, I never want to see you doing this again. And so that to him wasn't like, I should stop. It just meant, I'm just not going to do it at home anymore. Exactly. Right? That's just how his, his brain works. Right. And that must have been so shocking because he's said in that book that, you know, they didn't do anything like that. Like, he no. held her hands one time and she was like, nope, that's not happening. Right? So, and so... Can't even imagine. No. And he said they had a normal, healthy sex life. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surprise! Yeah. <laughs> not so normal. <laughs> he's into freaky things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in 1983, Raider's son Brian joined the Cub Scouts. And he became a scout leader. He continued to be very active in the church, and these activities, he felt, showed he was a good person. In 1984, investigators hadn't given up looking for the BTK killer. It had been 10 years since the Oteros had been murdered, and a new task force was set up to try to catch him. Our favorite FBI profiler, John Douglas, was called in to do a profile up for the task force. Ooh, how exciting. Yay! Yay! His profile said that the killer was sadistic, controlling, and superficial. He read detective magazines and pornography, enjoyed S&M practices with a partner, and liked to drive around. He was a lone wolf type. His car would be ordinary. He was probably mid-30s. He would live within a few mile radius of the crime scenes and probably had known one or more of the Oteros. He would do well in his job, which would allow him to wear a uniform, but would stay only temporarily employed. He probably had military training and an interest in law enforcement and carried weapons. Others would notice that he was critical of the cops and the investigation. John Douglas does it again, folks. That's pretty accurate. Right? So many things are just dead on the money. Yeah. And I will forever be astounded by how he can know so much about these horrible humans just from reading the crime scenes. Yes. And he did write a book about BTK as well. He did. He did. Yeah. I might even download it and just listen to the audiobook. Right. Because like, I want to hear all the things that he has to say about it. Right. I mean, I'm kind of uh, over it, but I also would love to hear John Douglas talk about it. So I, know. I feel like once you're in the zone, though, you should just binge all of it. So then you don't totally have to, like go back into it. If you right. I mean. I'm in the rabbit hole now. Right. Right. Yeah. Just get it over with. Deep dive then you can leave it alone for a very yeah. long time. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we know we can gush over Mr. Mindhunter for a long time, so we will move on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Raider kept prowling and satisfying his sexual urges in private, but he wouldn't be able to keep Factor X at bay for much longer. He started paying attention to his neighbor, who lived just down the street. Marine Hedge was 53 she would give a friendly wave to Raider when they were out working in their yards. And he started fantasizing about, quote, what her neck would look like with a rope around it, end quote. 
Ew. Ew, right? He started stalking her and learning her routine. He also knew that he couldn't use studying at the library anymore as an excuse to go out and uh, do bondage and murder. So he created a plan that involved sneaking away from a Cub Scout camp out. So on April 26, 1985, he headed out to scout camp and helped to set up camp. He parked up on a hill near the camp, but not in a place where he would get blocked in or that it would be obvious that he had left. He put his hit kit in a bowling bag. And later he told the group that he had a headache and he headed off to his tent early. He went to his car, drove away, changed out of his scout uniform and parked at a bowling alley. He went inside the bowling alley and ordered a beer and pretended he was a bowler. He called a taxi to come get him and he splashed beer on himself and swished it in his mouth and began acting drunk when the driver picked him up. As they approached his neighborhood, he asked to get out. He paid the guy and he walked over to Marine Hedge's house. He cut through his in-law's yard to get to her house as they lived between the Raiders and the Hedge's house. Yeah. Can you imagine? No. (laughs) Like, not at all. It's just like walking through the yard when he's supposed to be like out at Cubs camp and they're like, what are you doing? Right. And it's like right in his neighborhood. Like they live right. There, the in-laws live just down a couple houses. And then yeah. the neighbor that he is going after is right there as well. Like it's crazy. I know. Like how lucky that nobody he knew saw him. Right? right. Just looking out the window one night and being like, why is our son-in-law creeping around just... our yard? <laughs> what is right? wrong like, with that guy? <laughs> so weird. <laughs> God, Paula needs to divorce him. Right? If only. If only. He cut the phone line and quietly broke into her home. He discovered that she was not home once he was inside. But very soon, he heard a car door slam outside. He ducked into the hallway through a beaded curtain. Ah, the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) And hid in the spare room closet. Maureen was not alone. She had a male friend with her when she arrived home, and they visited for about an hour before he left. Marine went to bed after her friend left, and Raider waited until she was sleeping before entering her room. He turned on the bathroom light. She woke up and screamed. Raider jumped on the bed and strangled her with his hands. He had planned all along to take her out of the house to a second location and take photos of her in bondage. His initial plan involved her being alive to start, but since he murdered her right away, he decided to continue with the photo plan, even though she was already dead. He stripped her naked and tied her up and put her on a blanket. He went through the house, had a signature glass of water, then moved her to the trunk of her car. He had taken her keys, her ID, some jewelry, and her underwear. He drove to his church where he had the keys because he was the maintenance man. And he had some hit-related items stashed there, including a sheet of black plastic that he used to cover the windows so it wouldn't draw suspicion if someone drove past and saw the lights on. He tied her up and took photos of her in different positions in the church with a stolen Polaroid. When he was done, he was running out of time to get back to the camp. So he loaded her back into the car and drove her to a secluded ditch and dumped her body there and covered it with tree limbs and other plant material. He drove back to near the bowling alley wiped down her car, then walked back to his car. He then drove back to the church and cleaned up and returned to the camp. Like strange. Why wouldn't you just clean up while you were there? Exactly. Like we said in the last episode, he's always going back to crime scenes. And it's just so crazy. Multiple times. It's insane. But anyways, 
Uh, on his drive back to the camp, he remembered that he forgot to remove the cord from around her neck, and he had wanted to keep that. He snuck back into camp and into his tent and pretended that nothing happened. Since her body had not been discovered yet on Monday, he drove his company vehicle to the area where he had dumped her body and removed the cord. And then he just went back to work. That is so strange. Why do you need that cord? Just leave well, it. <laughs> he, he thought that it could link him to other murders, but I think it was just more of like a personal trophy. But yeah. When Maureen didn't show up for work, a concerned employee contacted her son, who went and discovered that her car was gone. And he didn't immediately call the police as he didn't see anything extremely amiss. He did, however, call the next day after she still had not returned home or to work. Police questioned her male friend, who was the last to see her alive, and he became the primary suspect. Her purse was found, and eventually her body was found in the ditch. Dennis Rader's daughter was six at the time that Maureen Hedge was murdered. She remembered that her dad was not home the night Mrs. Hedge went missing, as it was stormy and she crawled into bed with her mom. She later heard her mom and grandma discussing the murder, and she remembered being afraid. When she was initially told that her father was suspected to be BTK, she recalled the night to the FBI officer, and they were able to link Dennis Rader to that murder as well. So, Interesting side note, Carrie also recalled that she had broken her arm shortly after Maureen Hedges' murder, and her dad had been so angry that they couldn't go away on a trip because of her broken arm. Likely, he wanted to get out of town while he was on looking for her killer. The interesting part of this is the memories triggered from the childhood trauma of breaking her arm. I broke my arm when I was four, and at four, you don't typically remember huge details about things. However, I can tell you what I was doing, what we ate for supper, um, what blanket I was wrapped in to go to the hospital, what kind of sticker I got after getting x-rayed. I can tell you what my brother was playing, where I sat for dinner, etc. So it's completely fascinating to me that this sweet six-year-old who remembers all the things of when she broke her arm was able to connect that hedge murder to her dad because trauma makes your memories more solid. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, what a crazy coincidence that was. I know. Yeah. And it's true, though. Like, traumatic memories are the ones that stick with you. If you got hurt as a kid, that's what you remember. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Raider was completely satisfied with life. He had a good job. He had recently been promoted. He was busy with his family and his church. And his last murder had gone off without a hitch. So he decided to do it again. Naturally. Mm-hmm. Since he got to drive around for his job, he did his trolling then and decided to complete a project on his lunch hour because I'm sure that's what ADT was paying you for. Right. And also, can I say, <laughs> I hate that he calls it projects. It drives me oh, God. crazy. It is disgusting. I hate it so much, but he- it's... I kept it in there because it makes you hate him. Oh, absolutely. But the way he talks about his projects sounds like, oh, you know, I'm building my kid's tree house or just, you know, fixing up my old car. No, he's, his projects are the people he's going to murder or plotting to murder. Or talking, having sexual fantasies about while driving around in your work truck. Exactly. No. Cool. Gross. He spotted 28-year-old Vicky Woodgerl while trolling, and he stalked her for three weeks before he decided to strike. He took a Southwestern Bell telephone logo 
and taped it to a hard hat and made a fake ID so he could pose as a telephone repairman. He took his own car and parked a few blocks away, wore sunglasses, carried a briefcase, and approached her neighbor's door. He spoke to the couple next door and asked them some telephone-related questions. And then he went to the Wajural house. He knocked, and when she answered, he asked if he could come inside and check her phone lines. She let him in. He noticed her baby in a playpen in the living room and dogs barking wildly at the back door. She showed him to the phone, and he pulled out a fake instrument and pretended to fiddle with the phone line. When she turned away, Raider pulled out his twenty-two caliber pistol. She began crying and said her husband was coming home for lunch, and she was worried about her baby. He ordered her to the bedroom and tied her with a stocking from her dresser. But she broke the ties, and they started fighting. She scratched his nose and face, but Raider was able to overpower her, and he strangled her with a nylon stocking. When she stopped moving, Raider opened her clothes and took some pictures, gathered his things and a few trophies, and left. He got into her car and drove away. He ditched the car and walked back to his car. He stopped and changed back into his work uniform and went back to work. Vicky's husband had been on his way home for lunch when Raider attacked his wife. He even noted to police that he had thought he drove past someone driving his own gold 1978 Monte Carlo on his way home. I seriously don't know if Raider is that much of an idiot or he's the single most lucky motherfucker out there. I think he's the luckiest motherfucker out there. Like, it's ridiculous. How many times this guy should have been caught? Absolutely. Like, insane. (laughs) And he went to the neighbor's house first and spoke to them. Like, right? The balls. Like, that's ridiculous. I know. A strange dude in that neighborhood right before the neighbors get murdered. Like, did anybody be like, hey, that guy was. Hey, this guy came to my door. Right? And but you know he had sunglasses on, so right, so basically invisible, right, right, and also strange that he went ahead at her house when there was crazy dogs barking and everything like that. Like it just seems strange. I know, but he focused in apparently and was like, "Yep, yeah." He was like, "Oh no, I'm doing it. I only have an hour for lunch, (laughs) so I'm here." Time restraints, you know, (laughs) so inconvenient. Oh God. Oh, that stupid butt knob. Right? Stupid butt knob. I like it. I have to get something in. We're like halfway right? through and I haven't had any insults yet. Right? Gordon Wajural arrived home at 11.54 a.m. on September 16th, 1986 to find his car missing and his wife murdered and tied up on the bedroom floor. His two-year-old son was unharmed in his playpen in the living room. He called 911 and first responders tried to revive Vicky, but they were unsuccessful. Before they arrived, Gordon had cut the nylon stocking and leather shoelace from off of her neck. I cannot imagine how Gordon must have felt. He drove past the killer. If he had been a couple minutes earlier, he would have caught him in the act. Yeah, that's so unfair. Brutal. Raider continued to troll and fantasize about potential victims, creating multiple projects in his head while he was driving around and working. He would break into houses with the intention of possibly murdering again, but it usually wound up with him stealing lingerie or other small items, and then he would take those items to his motel parties and get off on the fantasy of what could have been. He would occasionally send poems or pictures to the police about other crimes that were not related to him in Wichita just to keep them guessing. 
and he began to get very creative in the ways and places he would perform bondage on himself, digging holes and partially burying himself in graves when out camping or wrapping himself in plastic. And he would always take pictures of himself, even having rigged up strings and things to take the picture because there was no selfie sticks back in the day. Oh my God, could you imagine? <laughs> uh, that would just add I know. so much humor <laughs> to those photos. That right? So terrifying. <laughs> so, so bad. He claims to have gotten busy with normal life, and this was enough to maintain his need for sexual release. In the summer of 1988, Raider lost his job at ADT due to problems within the company, and he was yet again the emasculated wiener that couldn't handle his wife being the one earning the money. He even had to pick up some more of the responsibilities for the kids, and he referred to that as playing Mr. Mom. Mm. That infuriates me. Like, I don't know if, yeah. it's, it's one of the, the things that I'm like, I fucking hate you. Like, I hate you yeah, so much. Like, uh, you're a parent. You are. You're their fucking dad. You're responsible for their dad. For all of that as well. Right? Like, right? If my husband mom. ever referred to the fact that he was playing Mr. Mom, I probably would punch him. That would be totally warranted, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, how about, you know, being a father? <laughs> Have you tried right? that? Because yeah. it has just as many responsibilities. Right? He got a temporary job with the census as a field operation supervisor for Wichita, and he was doing a lot of traveling again. His motel parties were more lavish than they were before. He had hand-painted masks and wigs. He had victims' lingerie and underwear. Plus, he had all his usual porn with drawn on bondage and he would rig himself up in different bondage things and get all his jellies off while in the motel rooms. I can at least say that this guy was dedicated. Like he like, had a passion. He was like, I know what I like. Yeah. I'm gonna do it. I'm, I'm gonna a- get weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go to this motel and I'm gonna be a creepy shit clown. That's what I'm gonna do. Sure am. Like the masks that are painted, nightmares. Terrifying. Like horror movie. Oh yeah. And then he puts wigs on and uh, and wearing ladies' underwear while doing it. Like it's a lot. uh, It's a lot. It's a a lot to take in. Yeah. It's it's not okay. (laughs) And this is where we break to drink. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Um, he was always on the lookout for potential victims. The census job was temporary, and when he was out of work again, the urge to kill came back stronger than before. He zeroed in on Dolores Davis, who was 62. He started stalking her in the fall, and on January 9th, 1991, while he was attending the Boy Scouts Dead of Winter campout, he planned his attack. He got to camp early and helped set up. He then told the group that he had forgotten something at home, so he was going to run back. He went to his parents' house as they were away and changed his clothes. He drove to a nearby church that was affiliated with the scouts. So if anybody had seen him, he would have a reason for being there. And he walked to Dolores Davis's house. He wasn't very graceful getting into her house. All the others, he was very sneaky, but it was cold out and his usual methods were failing. So he took a cinder block and he threw it through her sliding glass window. When she ran out to see what the hell had happened, 
Raider told her that he was wanted, the police were after him, and he needed her house, her car, and her money, and he was going to tie her up. She argued with him and tried to get him to leave, but he threatened her with a pipe, a gun, and a knife. Not just one. He had all three. How many hands does this guy have? I don't know. (laughs) Impressive. (laughs) He handcuffed her in the bedroom, then ripped the phone line out. He let her believe that he just needed to warm up, get some food, and he would leave. She asked him to leave her brand new shoes that were still in her car since she had just bought them. Gotta love a lady who appreciates her shoes. Just like you. Right? You're one of those ladies. Lots of full, like right there. Oh, that's so sweet and innocent. No. So he did. Because, you know, he liked to comfort his victims. Because he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. So nice. He then retied her with pantyhose, binding her hands to her feet while she was on her stomach. And with him sitting on top of her, he wrapped the pantyhose over her head and strangled her. Once she was dead, he wrapped her body in a blanket and dragged it to her car. He loaded her into the trunk and then drove her out near a lake and dumped her body in the bushes. He then drove over to his church and ditched some of the things under the church shed. And while there, he realized he didn't have his gun. Oh, surprise. He forgot something again. So he drove back to Dolores's house to look for his gun, which he had dropped when he broke the window. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe he shouldn't have so many things to balance in his hands. Right? And he like, where was the pipe? Shit. Right? Where was that knife? I, I don't know. I have questions. But anyways. Right? Jesus Christ. Before leaving her house for the final time, he threw her car keys up on the garage roof. And then he walked back to his car. He had a little stash of things he had taken from her house that he had tucked away in a ditch to come back and get later. Things like her jewelry box, her ID, and her camera. Once he got back to his car, he changed his clothes back to his scout uniform and checked his shoes for any broken glass. He then drove back to where he ditched her body. And he put her in his car now. Um, He had a plastic sheet in the back and he had the intention of driving her to a barn on the outskirts of town to take pictures Mm -hmm. of her. But it was snowing and foggy and he couldn't find the place he had in mind. So instead he drove to a bridge in town and put her under the bridge away from the elements so he could potentially return and take pictures then. He had to get back to camp so he carried on his way. He slept well in his tent and he was up early to start a fire waiting for the troops. Later that day, he told another leader that he had a headache and he was going to drive into town and get some meds. So off he went. He gathered his stash of things from the ditch and drove to where he'd left her body. He found her body with a little searching. She was covered with snow from the storm. He put a hand-painted mask on her and took pictures of her and then headed back to camp. While he was at a rest stop, he was approached by a police officer who was investigating a crime in the area and asked him what he was doing there. The officer believed his scout leader's story and let him go on his way. Raider decided it was best to ditch all items connected to the Davis murder, and on his way back to camp, he tucked them away in a culvert. Police were investigating Dolores' disappearance and her break-in. A friend had called police and reported her missing after showing up at her house to work on her car and discovered things amiss at 12.30 p.m. Her body was not discovered until February 1st by a boy walking his dog. She was tied with pantyhose, and a porcelain mask was discovered near her body, 
animals had scavenged parts of her body, but they were still able to identify her. Oh, that's horrible. That's awful. Mm -hmm. Raider's daughter, Carrie, was in the seventh grade at the time of Dolores Davis's murder. She remembers being at a friend's house for a sleepover, and the friend's mom had told them that not far from there, a woman's home had been broken into with a cinder block thrown through the sliding glass window, and she was later found murdered. Ten years later, she was looking for an apartment to rent, and as she went through the second floor apartment with the sliding glass doors, she remembered the cinder block incident. Carrie then called her dad to get his opinion on the safety of her apartment. He confidently reassured her that it was safe, and on his first visit, he rigged up a broom handle so that the door couldn't be opened from the outside. Ugh, so frustrating. Like, right? Her whole life, he's always so cautious with her and like making protective sure of her and which obviously that's what a father's supposed to do but it's because he knows the bad that's in the world and what people right? are capable and he's like this is what i've done so we should probably make sure that it can't happen here because he's the boogeyman exactly right and he studies other people like that so he knows that there's more boogeymen out there right in the time after the davis murder raider was depressed he didn't have a job, and he was forced to let his wife provide for him and the family. He contemplated suicide, but self-preservation won out. And in May of 1991, he got a full-time job as a compliance officer for Park City. He got to enforce bylaws on lawn maintenance, litter, pet control, shoveled sidewalks, and other such things. And I have to say, I personally have worked with a few bylaw officers in our town, and there's definitely a personality that excel in this position. Mm -hmm overly cocky and like to have that power to issue tickets and warnings to people. I personally <laughs> have gotten warnings because my trees were hanging too far over the sidewalk. And actually I currently have a warning hanging on my fridge because I need to reissue my cat license. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I get a warning, I'm like, God, I hate this guy. <laughs> I personally like him because he's like, it's black or white. You're right or you're wrong. There's no in between. And I'm like, good. Thank you. Deal with it. I really enjoyed working with him. I just don't like it when he like issues me warnings. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and I've worked with other ones that were much worse. Yeah. Fair much, enough. much worse. Yes. Well, as long as he's not out on your lawn, like measuring the length of your grass. I think no, but I know that okay. he does go and like sit out by the one park in town with like binoculars and watch people if they have their dogs off leash. So oh, that's kind of hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah. you're yeah. so cool. Nice. <laughs> Anyways, mm -hmm. Raider loved this job. Mm -hmm. The power he got from issuing this, these warnings just fed his ego. He built more hidey holes for his porn and collections of things from his crimes some at home, lots in his office, some at church. He also had a safety deposit box that he stashed things in. And he even had plans to build hidey holes in his kid's treehouse. Ew. Right? Come on, how many do you need? Like, man, how much porn do you have? <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> he had checklists, of course, so he could keep track of where all of his hiding spots were. And the list was, of course, kept in a hidey hole. You just have to remember which hidey hole that is kept Which hidey hole it was in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I have to have a list for your lists. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Raider never stopped prowling, but he understood that he was getting older, and if he were to complete another murder, it would likely be his last. So he just, he was just looking for the perfect project. But in the meantime, he was appeased by his life and his dark hobbies. In 1996, Raider's dad passed away, leaving his mother's care to him, as he was the oldest boy. The added duties of caring for his mother left hardly any time for projects. But it was about this time that other serial killers were getting a lot of attention in the news. David Parker Ray, the toy box killer, who we will never cover, ever. He's terrible. You want to know about him? Look him up. Sorry, bestie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's he's right up there with BTK, but I don't think I can talk about Mm -hmm. the shit that that guy did. No. Um, Anyways, he had just been caught. And Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, had also just been caught. Ridgway's capture was unsettling more than others for Raider because he'd gone undetected for so long like Raider. Ridgway was caught, of course, using DNA, and investigators began to think that maybe they could catch Raider the same way. A new task force, led by Lieutenant Kenneth Landwehr, started going back over the unsolved cases. Raider understood that he was in danger of being found out. He knew he had left semen at the Otero house and at Nancy Fox's, plus Vicky Woodgerald had scratched his face. He started ditching his stash of evidence, and he had his very last motel party. Oh, Woo. poor guy. <laughs> but his concern about the police catching him was quickly abandoned when a local author announced he was going to write a book about the unsolved BTK cases. Raider went into a tizzy. He started sending cryptograms and letters to the Wichita Eagle and leaving packages at random locations around the city. He went crazy. Mm-hmm. The first letter he sent was received on March 19th, 2004. It was from Bill Thomas Kilman, which obviously stands for BTK. So clever. clever. Mm -hmm. And it was sent on the anniversary of Shirley Vianne's murder. There were Polaroid photos of a bound woman, a copy of Vicki Wajero's driver's license, the BTK symbol, and a code of numbers and letters at the top of the one letter. The code was a message to the author of the book, Let Beatty the author, no for his book. Raider was high on his cat and mouse game with the police. He prepared more packages. On May 4th, 2004, Cake TV received a package from Thomas B. Kingman. Mm -hmm. Again, right? BTK. The package contained a full page word puzzle, photocopies of two handmade ID badges, and a page with chapter headings, for the BTK story. The chapter titles were one, a serial killer is born, two, dawn, three, fetish, four, fantasy world, five, the search begins, six, BTK haunts, seven, PJs, which is short for projects. He would write PJs all the way through this book. Yeah, well, not only does he have nicknames for everything, but those nicknames have like initials or like code a short words. version. Yeah, code words for his code words. I honestly don't know how he kept it all straight, but yeah, whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, it's because of his list, his list for his list, for his code yeah. words. It's all... Which, right, naturally. Yes. Um, chapter eight was M-O, I-D, and Ruse. Chapter nine, Hits. Chapter 10, Treasured Memories. 11, Final Curtain Call. 12, Dusk. And chapter 13, Will there be more? <laughs> that list, like I feel 
physically ill now because it just it just bugs me to the core. I, I know. It it upset my stomach. <laughs> I'm like, no. I know. It's no. not okay. I hate it. I hate this man. I hate his attitude and the God complex and, mm-hmm. you know, so happy somebody's writing a book about him, but he just has to intervene and be like, oh, hey, here's a little help. And lots of people attribute his capture actually to BD writing this book yeah, because he did, like, he went That's a great crazy. Point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> Police worked to decipher the code and they figured out that he was giving them clues as to what he wanted included in the book. June 13th, 2004, a package was discovered taped to a stop sign. The package was labeled as a BTK field gram, and it contained three photocopied sheets that had shrunken images on them, two featured chapters for the book, a drawing of a nude bound woman hanging from a rope, the 13 chapter titles again, and the BTK symbol. Raider, at this point, had just been elected as vice president of the Christ Lutheran Church congregation. He was still evading suspicion at home, and he was loving how he was tormenting the police with his codes and his games. Knowing now that BTK was responsible for the murder of Vicki Wajerl, the task force ran the DNA sample, collected it from underneath her fingernails, and compared it with the DNA left at the other crime scenes, officially connecting BTK to the Wajerl, Fox, and Otero murders. Detective Landwehr began addressing BTK directly in his press conferences, and that fed Raiders' ego. In fact, it made him continue to feel like he was smarter than them. He continued to send letters to taunt the police. He sent short fictional stories, more chapters to his book, and coded messages just to keep them guessing. He decided he was going to go for one last hit, and it would be a big one. He had a location picked out, and he'd narrowed it on his victim. And he had it all planned how he would go about it. He fantasized burning the house down when he was done. But, unfortunately for Raider, the day of the planned attack, he went to the house only to discover a crew of city workers doing maintenance work outside. He drove away unsatisfied. And I freaking love that, that he yep. was like, God damn it, this was my like big hurrah. Yes, exactly. Finally, something didn't work out for him. I know. Out of all of those incidences, everything always just seemed to work, even though he had some major fuck ups. Finally, right? one thing did not go as planned. I'm so happy that that person lived and those city workers were there that day. And Yeah. And he was like, this is going to be like my final high. Like this is going to be the ultimate hit. And he was just left yeah. disappointed. It's like, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Satisfying. He kept teasing police with more chapters from his book and parts of his writings were fiction and parts were true. He actually fabricated an entire chapter about his mother beating him for masturbating. Again. Blame his mom. Stop blaming your fucking mom. Yep. She was a bloody angel. Right? (laughs) Again, blame yourself. It's no fault but your own. And it it almost seemed that he was losing control over his compartmentalized parts. Just an, an observation I got when reading Catherine Ramsen's book. At this point, his writings became almost manic. Mm. He was bending his fantasy world into his real world on paper, and he seemed to lose a bit of his control of the darkness that he'd spent over 30 years, like, keeping tucked beneath right. the surface there. 
his need for attention and his enjoyment at tormenting the police caused him to put himself out there to the point that the police were not going to stop until they caught him. Good. Right? Yeah. He called in a bomb threat to the jewelry store where Nancy Fox had worked. And instead of a bomb, they found another BTK package. This was in December of 2004. The package contained a Barbie-like doll that was nude and bound, details describing Nancy Fox's murder, and more potential chapters to add to the book. He began adding in the use of cut-up cereal box labels to enhance his communications, and almost all of them contained a doll of some sort representing one of his murdered victims. The cereal box was to symbolize serial killer. Again, so clever. Nobody ever made that connection before. Right? And in January of 2005, he was caught on security camera at a Home Depot leaving a package. The image was blurry and investigators could not identify the suspect from the video, but it was the first time he had ever been seen by police. Nice. They were excited. Mm-hmm. And he actually um, had drove his son's car to do that drop. So nice. if there was ever any question about his vehicle or whatever, mm-hmm. it's his son's and he could be like, oh yeah, that was stolen. What a lovely, lovely dad, dad thing to do. Thanks, dad. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> That's awesome. You can borrow my car anytime. <laughs> In this package, there was a document called communication. He described his fantasy lair, his list of projects, and then he asked if he can communicate safely with a floppy disk. He urged the police to be honest and to answer in a specific part of the newspaper answering, Rex, it will be okay. And Rex sounds like sex, so that's why he chose to be addressed that way. Ew, I didn't know that. I always thought Rex sounded so stupid, and I'm like, why? Oh, no. I just have to use... I have to use a simpler part of my brain. To yeah, it's because it sounds like sex. Wow. And he liked it. Yeah, I, I like the sex. I'm going to make it sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> How old? This guy is freaking old at this point, too. Like, yeah, like he's, he's an old dude. <laughs> yeah, he's in his 50s. Yeah. And he's still a child. Yep. A prepubescent child. The police answered the ad, as he had asked, and they were very excited at this new potential lead. Because, of course, they could actually figure out a lot of details from a floppy disk. I'm dying. But they sure shit were not going <laughs> to reveal that to BTK. It just cracks me up. It's so funny. <laughs> Once the first disk was received, the police department's computer guy started digging into it. In the properties, he found the name Dennis. Then from restoring the data that had been overwritten, they traced the disk to Christ Lutheran Church. After that, all it took was a quick Google search to learn the president of the congregation was a man named Dennis Rader. Oh, one of the yeah. best. I know. It just oh, makes me so happy. After so much anger and frustration with this guy, like I'm just over overjoyed. <laughs> I know I got to this part in the books and I was like, hey, yes. <laughs> and then when I got to when I was writing and I was like, I'm just so happy. <laughs> Finally, some good news. Right? I love it so much. Uh, police then went to the church, spoke with the pastor and were granted access to the computer where they found a digital footprint on the hard drive 
of the most recent BTK messages. A DNA sample was then subpoenaed from Raider's daughter's medical files from college, and the sample was compared to the samples left at the crime scenes. And guess what? They matched. Of course they did. Raider was put under surveillance while they gathered search warrants for Raider's home, office, and church. When they had all their ducks in a row, an officer went to the houses of Raider's family and escorted them to the police station before the time he they were going to arrest him. And FBI agents were sent to notify Raider's children of his arrest. At 12.15 on February 5th, 2005, detectives pulled Raider over on his way home for lunch. He initially thought he was pulled over because he must have run a stop sign. But as he was swarmed by police and unmarked cars and arrested, he quickly figured out that he was in way more trouble. You think? <laughs> over the next three hours of interrogation, Raider tried his best to not let on that he was BTK. But with the knowledge that they discovered who he was through the disc he sent them, and they had matched DNA left at the crime scenes with a sample taken from his daughter, he began to confess. Police talked with Raider for around 30 hours over two days. Police found his hidey holes and all leftover evidence that he hadn't already previously sent to them. Police had enough evidence to charge him with eight murders, but once he started talking, Raider admitted to all 10 murders that he was responsible for. He was held in Cedric County Jail for his hearings. His family was not present for any of his hearings or court appearances. He was charged with all 10 murders, and his bail was set for $10 million. That's a lot. <laughs> as it should be. Yeah. On May 3rd, the judge entered not guilty pleas, as Raider remained silent at his arraignment. After some correspondence with his daughter, pastor, and other family members persuading him to change his plea, on June 27th, the scheduled trial date, he pled guilty. He then went on to describe each murder in detail and made no apologies for his actions. Raider was sentenced on August 18th, 2005 to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. He was moved to El Dorado Correctional Facility where he's been in solitary confinement since his arrival. He is permitted one hour of exercise per day and three showers a week. Nice. I love that, that he's in solitary confinement. I know what that does to a person's brain, but he deserves it. He deserves it. Yeah. He um, was granted a TV and a radio, I believe, for mm-hmm. good behavior, right. which I don't necessarily think is good, but yeah. who am I to say that he's not allowed TV? Oh, man. And you mentioned that he went into great detail about all of his murders. That's yeah. what I was yeah. watching before That's what recording. you were Yeah. And oh, my God. It is so frustrating. Like I had to stop it like five times and just be like, oh my God, oh my God, this fucking guy, like he's acting like a professor of like basically of serial killers. Like he says to the judge at one point, well, if you study serial killers and like goes on to like, oh yeah, talk about how, like what serial killers do. And you know, there's parts to this, like right now I'm in this part of my stalking or whatever. And it's like, you're talking to a judge about what serial killers do i think he knows i I think think he knows he's well aware of but i think this judge is sitting there thinking man if kansas had the death penalty (laughs) like he was so nonchalant had no care in the world about the things that he was talking about it was like well they're his greatest accomplishments absolutely yeah the things he is the most proud of are those 10 murders yes 
yep and he's just like oh this project and that project and he mm -hmm. was thrilled to explain all of his stupid little code words like oh, oh god so happy you asked about that like let me explain like let me tell you yourself. oh my god it's the worst I know. the worst it's terrible you it's want terrible. to sit through 45 minutes of this a-hole talking and you know being the worst person ever then that's on youtube one of my uh, favorite details was at his i think it was at his sentencing where the victims could do their victim mm, yes. um, statements victim um, statements victim impact statements victim in impact statements the victims families got up and left because they're like you're not they're you're, you're not, not worth it yeah honestly it's it's not even worth it's it. a bigger like, fuck you to him for them not to say anything absolutely because he would probably enjoy it because he wants all the attention oh, he totally. wants to be talked to and told all about how he messed with other people's lives and everything like that yeah so good good on them i love yeah. that yeah i was usually, like i love that usually i love the victim impact statements because they're fantastic they're powerful but in this case that's absolutely perfect yeah love it um raider's family never stayed in the family home again after his arrest they went back to pack and clean and the house was later auctioned off raider's wife paula was issued an emergency divorce on july 26 2005 his wife, children, and other family members have had to deal with the consequences of his actions, dealing with things like PTSD, depression, anger, and just so, so much trauma. And so again, before we finish, I just want to talk about his last three victims because they were beautiful human beings. Maureen Hedge was 53 when she was murdered. She was described as quiet and dependable at her job as the second shift supervisor at a medical center coffee shop. She was born in Arkansas, but moved to Kansas with her late husband, who died the previous year. She was kind, petite, and always well-dressed. She was an adoring mother to three daughters, one son, and many grandchildren. She enjoyed bingo, yard work, and attending the Baptist church. Vicki Wajeral was 28 when she was murdered. She was a wife and mother. She was calm, quiet, and never raised her voice. She loved children and enjoyed visiting with other moms. She ran a day home and helped in the nurseries at her two churches. She attended the Lutheran church because it was her faith and the Methodist church because it was her neighborhood church. And she loved to play the piano. Dolores Davis was 62 when she was murdered. Her friends and loved ones called her Dee. She grew up on a farm in Nebraska. She was an excellent cook and made everything from scratch. She had been married for 12 years, but divorced from her husband, Harry, in 1961. They had two children together, a son and a daughter. She was a fun, protective, and devoted mom and grandmother. She had spent 25 years as a secretary for Lario Oil and Gas Company, and she had just retired a few months prior to her death. She was passionate about animal rights and sold Mary Kay products to supplement her income. She was adored by her family. Oh, my heart. I know. Well, I love that. The biggest I know. fuck you to Dennis Rader is to remember the victims and to remember how amazing they were. I know they were, and they were all just beautiful human beings. Like, absolutely. And I don't know if it's intentional, but it seems like he seemed to have targeted a lot of mothers. I know. And, you know, he blamed a lot of things on his mothers. So I'm yeah. just tying that together now, but it seems to be yeah. a, a theme. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like we talked about in the last episode, he, he also chose like those really God fearing families. Mm -hmm. And yes, they're in the Bible belt and there's yeah. lots of God fearing families, but he could have been targeting prostitutes and sex workers like 
Ridgeway did, but yeah. he wasn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we made it. Yeah. We made it. I have a few little things that I wanted to throw sure. in here. We can just discuss back and forth, but, Absolutely. um, Raider had been assessed by psychologist Robert Mendoza to see if he was fit to stand trial. His defense was toying with the idea of an insanity plea, but obviously that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was diagnosed with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders. Mendoza observed that Raider had a grandiose sense of self, a belief that he is special, and therefore entitled to special treatment, a pathological need for attention and admiration, a preoccupation with maintaining rigid order and structure, and a complete lack of empathy for his victims. He also diagnosed him with hypergraphia, which is excessive writing and detail in conversation, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he wasn't actually categorized as a psychopath, which I was surprised by. Mm -hmm. He just didn't fit the criteria. Interesting. He was a narcissist, not a psychopath. Definitely a narcissist. Totally a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dr. Catherine Ramsland, so the author of our wonderful book, mm -hmm. talked in her book about how Raider presented with something called narcissistic immunity. And I'd never heard this term before, but it's no. so interesting. So this is a quote from her book. Offenders like Raider can display both an enduring resilience and apparent naivety. Since they've gotten away with murder, they believe they're smart enough not to get caught. So true. And so narcissistic immunity is one of the reasons why we hate him so yeah. much. There you go. It's nice to put a name on that. I know. And I, it's kind of like, I don't know what it is, but he's- I don't worst. know what it is, but I can hate this guy. But it, that is absolutely so true. It's because <laughs> he's a bumbling idiot that just kept getting away with it. And he's like, I'm going to get away with it forever because- I'm the best. He's like, well, that worked. So yeah, why not? Yeah. I'll do it again. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going because I can't get caught. Right. They didn't catch me. They should have caught me. They didn't catch me. <laughs> they definitely should have, but. <laughs> they should have caught him many times, like in the 50 times that he returned to his crime scenes to exactly. pick up lost guns and things. And driving his own vehicle and all, all of that. You know, his work truck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, so and. Another reason that I find him really frustrating um, is that he truly believes he's going to heaven. Mm -hmm. He believes that because he has asked God to forgive him, then he's going to get to stroll through those pearly gates just as happy as a clam, floating away on a cloud, whatever happens there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not familiar, but he, he seems to know all about it. Right? Thinks he does. So I grew up in a Christian home. I attended church every Sunday. We talked about the power of forgiveness and all that, but, but <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, and this is just my opinion. So hear me out <laughs> in the early books of the Bible. God laid it out pretty clear. Mm -hmm. This is what you got to do to get into heaven. He even stamped it into a stone. Yep. The 10 commandments pretty clearly state thou shall not commit murder, right? That right there, ask for forgiveness or not, tells me he's not getting into heaven. But the Ten Commandments also include, thou shall not steal, mm -hmm. thou shall not covet thy neighbor, mm -hmm. thou shall honor thy mother and father. Uh, yeah, dude, yeah. Mm -hmm. you fucking failed. You did. <laughs> you failed. What is your argument for that? Like, that's like the like, most well-known thing about the Bible is the Ten come Commandments. Come at me. <laughs> 
Oh my God. Yeah. It is such an infuriating yeah. part is everybody else to him. It's not Christian. It's not Christian. Right. Yes. In, um, in his daughter's book, his family, not writing him letters once he was captured. That was not very Christian of them. And he wrote his daughter that. Yeah. Well, it's not very Christian that your uncles are not writing to me. Yeah. Or communicating with me. I almost died. I was like, are you kidding me? I had like a visceral reaction. Oh, me too. (laughs) Pissed me off. I almost threw that book across the room like, (laughs) fuck you, guy. Fucking hate you. (laughs) Seriously, though. And it's not the only time he had stated that. Like, there are so many other things like in confession of, of a serial killer he'd be like well that's not a very christian thing to do and it's just no, it's like, not a very christian thing dude and you know he was a god-fearing member of the church so yeah. he was a good person well he was right up there he's the vice president wound up being the president in the end actually right. Right. yeah yeah so the tippy top just right up there with god buddy buddies yeah just rubbing yeah. elbows with the big guy upstairs right? like you'll forgive me right yeah. yeah, we we buds. Yeah, we go there. way back. Like, just don't even worry about. That's a different part of me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's John Douglas that says when he deals with people that say they have multiple personalities, he's like, "Well, yeah. you know, I'll just lock up the the one personality that committed the murders, and you'll be fine." <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like <laughs> still a part of you. you it's still, still part of you. Things. Yep. You still did these things. I don't give a um, shit about your cubing means nothing. Yes. Yeah. The fact that you can live your life through this one fucking cube Yeah. for most of the time, but then the other time you're looking at this, even, I don't care. Even if it's like 2% of the time you're in that cube, you still did the worst things humanly possible. And it wasn't 2% of the it time. It wasn't. I think you were it in wasn't. your family bubble like 2% of the time. 100%. I was thinking that the entire time with his little arts and crafts, like how much yeah. fucking time did you dedicate to arts and crafts with your little Barbie dolls or like he didn't have enough porn so he would just draw it himself. He would right. pictures of women and like draws on bonded I know. stuff and it's insane. Like you, what, you know what you could have been doing? You could have been playing catch with your kid. Right? He was you could have been complaining. Doing- fucking arts and crafts with your daughter like right. come on man basically complaining he didn't have enough time for murder <laughs> but he also right? was like spending all of his time with his his crafts and his drawings and his writing and his poetry and his I'm like, I'm like did this guy sleep because seriously like when do you have time to do all of this stuff plus be a family guy like plus right. have a job plus be a like leader in your church be a scout leader like exactly do you sleep Apparently not. I mean, he would sneak away while the scouts were out camping to go yeah. commit his murders. Yeah. He was on a schedule. He was like, I well, have a lunch time. break. I have to go do I have, I have 30 minutes. <laughs> God, time to go commit murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't get to leave Jeez. right on time, so I got to do this quick. And then what he did to his family. Like, oh, my God. It infuriates me that he not only did that, horrible things to those poor people and their families had to deal with repercussions of it but his family that he chose his family that mm-hmm. he chose paula he chose to have kids he chose to stick around and ex- yeah. potentially expose them to this what kind of fucking asshole are you i know it's i don't know i don't even have words honestly for how no. mad that makes me like no 
that is so unfair. That doesn't even begin to explain any of it. Like it's so much more than unfair. Like your job as a parent is to not fuck up your kids. Right. Yeah, right. And, and to not hurt your kids. Mm -hmm. And he fucked up his kids. Oh yeah. He hurt his kids. Like he hurt his wife. He hurt his mother, but he mm -hmm. hurt his kids. Oh yeah. Like, and just reading Carrie's book about the PTSD and like mm -hmm. how she would be triggered. And like, she saw a guy in a prison uniform mm -hmm. and she was like, had a panic attack. Oh yeah. Cause she got with PTSD Absolutely. because her dad is a serial killer. Like, yeah. She lived with him every single day and that was her and loved protector. Him. Loved him. Yeah. <laughs> Unconditionally. And then you're hit with that and you're like, why am I, am, am I a bad person because I love him? It's like, yeah. it's, that's not your fault. You're supposed yeah. to love your father. You're not supposed to have to deal with this. He's the first man you ever loved, right? Like, yeah, it's, so he's your hero. It's yeah. At the end of Carrie's book, she did say that she's been able to forgive him. Mm -hmm. She will remember the father that he was. Yeah. And she forgives him for what he did because mm -hmm. that's the only way she can move on with her life. And I commend her for that because Absolutely. that is not an easy thing to do. It's nope. <laughs> what he did is unforgivable. So for her to be able to be like, I yep. still love the man that you were is that's amazing. That's amazing of her. And I said to Michelle, I don't think I would be that strong. I, I don't think I'm think that I good could. of a person that I would be able to be okay with that. And it's not that she's okay with it. She has to move on for her, for her herself and, for and her children and for her husband and everything else. She she's doing it yeah. to survive, but man, what a, a difficult thing to have to I face. I could not even imagine. No, nobody should have no. to. Oh, and then since we're on that topic, did you watch any interviews with her? Yeah. On, like the news and stuff. They, goddamn, they pissed me off. Like, oh, they make me so mad. They were so insensitive. Like, but do you love him? Like, do you love him? And it's she's just like, like, yeah, it's, he's my dad. That's my dad. And then being asked, well, how could you not know? How could you or your mother or your brother not know? And she was like, Honestly, I hate that question. That question makes like, me mad. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I would fucking walk out of that studio right then and there. Like, if I knew, do you think I wouldn't have called the cops right? or left or exactly. like, oh my God. I, was... I, I feel like if her mother had known, she would have yeah. left, oh, right? Yeah. She almost left just for catching him in bondage. Exactly. Exactly. And right? I, oh, I just felt for her going through that because it was like the biggest talked about thing. Like everybody wants to interview with her and she put it off for years and years and years. Yeah. I think that it was about totally, 10 years. Yeah. I think it was a decade and yeah. that is totally fine. But she finally agrees to it. And I feel like they mm -hmm. treated her terribly. I think they did her a disservice I, because I she so. told her story about him because there was two sides to this man, Yeah, which is incredibly fascinating and complicated and horrific and Mm -hmm. whatever and they're just focusing on the fact that you're talking to us so tell us like yeah how did you not know about the murders right oh, right God, she's like she, she's like i used to read true crime novels with my dad like he'd yeah. read in the stranger beside me and then i'd read it and we'd discuss it and and 
<laughs> to me, that's pretty normal, <laughs> right? That's what we do. That's what right? I did with my granny and my mom. So right? that doesn't mean shit. Doesn't mean that he's a bad person, but he was a bad person. So he was. Like, and yeah, he had a temper sometimes, but I think everybody has a temper sometimes. Right? So it's not her fault. I feel like it's they not were her putting fault. it on her. Like it was her fault. And it's it's not. She no. didn't ask to be in that position. No. Really. <sighs> oh. Yeah. I know. So <sighs> how do you feel, Tara? <laughs> uh, you know. Fired this, up. <laughs> this is fine. Yeah. It's just fine. fine. It's totally fine. It's all good. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's and I forgot to include my references in the last episode, but references for part one and two were obviously Serial Killer's Daughter by Carrie Rawson, Confessions of a Serial Killer by Catherine Ramsen, Wikipedia, Timetoast.com, Kansas.com, ABC News. Um, I found this amazing website called CarrieSable.com and it had so much information about the victims. Oh, nice. Yeah. Way to go, guys. That was awesome. Findagrave.com mm-hmm. um, and the ABC 2020 special on my father, BTK. I think that's the one I'm talking about mm-hmm. in interview. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So go watch it. If you yeah. Want to be, well, it's very interesting. It's also very It's period. very interesting. <laughs> yes. That's also the interview that I watched that they interviewed Charlie Otero. Oh, in. yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And it was interesting to hear him speak as a family member who's... Mm-hmm. who discovered his parents yeah oh. how his his life was affected by it and how he had to really push through those challenges too he also went to a very dark place he was into drugs and bad things and he's totally yeah. turned his life around and stuff so yeah absolutely there's just there's so many victims in a case like this <laughs> it's definitely obviously the murder victims but it's the families that are left behind and it's the family on the other side too right yeah I'm glad we could yeah. we can hear that side and we do get to talk about it a little bit more yeah me too our next episode nerd book club yeah should be next week there might be a morning news in between there we'll just yes <laughs> i see how finally got my book confession <laughs> of a serial killer just like last week you know yeah like they're posted here for christmas but it's fine it's fine so <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm and really- january is totally normal <laughs> Totally. It's the same thing. Uh, so I'm reading through it as fast as I can, but we are, we're planning on putting both the books together in one book club episode, similar to what we did for the Waco series. So we would like to do that all together. So hopefully I can read really fast, but lots of editing and other stuff to do this week. So yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. See how it goes. Yeah. And we like morning news and it's been a while. So yeah. And there's some things that I want to talk about. So <laughs> Well, that's what I'm not going to say. Oh, but I want to know now. Well, you got to (laughs) wait. Damn it. I know. All right. Um, You ready for some fluff and stuff? Always ready for the fluff and stuff, especially after a BTK episode. Yeah. So my question is, what TV or movie character is most like you? (laughs) Well, considering that I, you know, pretty much only watch true crime I didn't have a lot to choose from I felt like, <laughs> I was like I was like oh I'm gonna challenge her yeah um the only thing that I watch other than true crime at least right now is Grey's Anatomy yeah huh? and I hate that this is the first thing that popped in my head but I feel like I relate to Christina Yang a lot and I don't like okay. that because she drives me crazy honestly 
<laughs> but then I realized that it's probably because we're similar because I'm like the most competitive person in the world. <laughs> and so <laughs> is she. <laughs> and she focuses, I can see it. she focuses a lot on work and, you know, nothing else gets in the way. It's all about work. It's work, you know, at work, but then at home, I have to have different work. I always have yeah. projects and also not good with children. <laughs> and I have a husband <laughs> that bugs me every single day about children. Oh my God. You are Christina Yang. I know, but she drives me crazy. But then I also think if I were to ever hire somebody exactly like myself, I couldn't handle it. So it yeah. makes sense that Christina Yang drives me crazy. Yeah. I totally thought you were going to pick somebody from the office. You know, I thought about it, but <laughs> Christina was just, it was up there. So I was like, well, I like it. I we'll like it. Yeah. What about you? So I picked this question and then I was like, I don't know. I, I, I want to know Tara's answer, but I don't know for me. So I asked my husband and he was like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, good. Nice. And so like, we're actually playing a game of crib tonight before we were sort of recording <laughs> and he was like. Margaret Houlihan? And I was like, from MASH? I was like, yeah, like when I was like at the clinic, 100%. Yeah. She's head nurse. She's yep. like good leader. She's compassionate. She's, mm -hmm. yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah I, yeah, I see that. So a little bit of Margaret Houlihan. Yeah. But then as we were playing, I was like, Molly Weasley. And he was like, yes. <laughs> He's like, That's she's witchy. Yeah. She's a mama. He's yep. like, she's a mama bear. Mm -hmm. But she's also like, lovable and like oh, welcoming yeah. and I was like yeah I, I could be that. Molly Weasley oh, I was like that's sweet yeah. I think you should be Meredith Grey though because you know uh well you're my sister. person yeah you know yeah. dark and twisties all that yeah mm-hmm yeah, mm -hmm. my person I feel but. like I have my shit a little more together than Meredith though. <laughs> true <laughs> that is true but you know yes <laughs> uh, I mean I at least that. you didn't call me Izzy so. oh god <laughs> That would be a slap in the face. Yeah, she's <laughs> the worst. We don't like her. I warned you. I know you did. <laughs> uh, I hope other people know what we're talking about. Oh yeah. There's a whole like. There's a few out there I know. That yeah, there's like... a few out there. Hmm. Anyways, Love make it. sure to answer our question as well. What TV or movie character is most like you? And obviously, let us know what you think about the episode. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Murder and Merlot Podcast, Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast, and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed. And if you don't, you're dead to me. And remember our next book, book slash case that we are studying, reading, whatever, is Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi, which is, of course, the story of the Manson murders. And it is so fun, but in a twisty way. <laughs> so twisty. You know, I was listening to the audiobook today while I was cooking, and I was like bopping along. And I'm like, am I really bopping along to an audiobook? As if it swear was to, a song. I <laughs> like, swear to God, I'm going to make you a flower crown. <laughs> oh, I'm like, what is wrong with me? But that's how I feel right now. I'm super psyched. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, remember to drink wine. 
because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.